You are listening to Natural Born Okay, hold, hold up, hold up, hold up. Stop, stop, stop. <clears throat> I just want to say, if you want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. Get access to these episodes in advance and go behind the scenes with lots more cool content. Join us on Patreon. Okay, that's all. Uh, on with the show. You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 189 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Once again the month has come to an end and we are going to listen to a pre-recorded talk. This time our speaker will be Terence McKenna. Personally you can never go wrong I think with uh, a bit of McKenna. In this talk, McKenna talks about what it's like to be loaded. And in the beginning of the talk, he mentions the story in the New Testament of doubting Thomas. When the disciples tell Thomas that Jesus has returned, he does not believe them until Jesus appears before him, until he can touch Jesus' wounds. Then he believes that Jesus has risen from the grave. I guess one reason Terence McKenna likes this story of Doubting Thomas is because when it comes to psychedelics we do not need to believe anything because we are shown the divine mystery. We can, like Doubting Thomas, doubt all we want because when we eat or drink or smoke the psychedelic substance of choice uh, we are shown. However, there is something in the story of Doubting Thomas that McKenna fails to mention Uh, when Jesus allows Thomas to touch his wounds. Jesus says, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I think that's an important aspect of the story. And I know when a lot of time has passed since my last psychedelic ceremony, I begin to doubt what I have experienced. And when I eventually do it again, all doubt fall away. And I again know, believe and trust what I have experienced. Which is that there is an infinite eternal beauty out there. That we are more than our physical bodies and that love and compassion is the most important thing in life. Why do I ever doubt this? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In order to make sure we all understand the domain we're operating from here, I would like to talk a little about what it's like to be loaded in or, because I think that's the ground zero of what we're talking about. It, psychedelics are like any other uh, social phenomena. There are a lot of wannabes. There are a lot of people who are along for the ride. I'm sure the pagan community is no stranger to this phenomenon because there are certain residual spin-offs if you proclaim yourself pagan that are hard to obtain any other way similarly for being psychedelic my notion of of the psychedelic cosmogony if you want to think of it that way is it's like a bullseye it's like a series of concentric circles and various substances place you in various quadrants of that mandala at various distances from ground zero which is at the absolute center and nature in her bounty has provided various coordination points I mean there's the cannabis coordination point the opiate coordination point Uh, The tropanes that were so important in European witchcraft, the solanaceous, 
plants, thiocyamine, those things. That's a different chemical family and a different uh, uh, group of plant families that these compounds occur in. And in, you know, I've been at this fairly steadily since 1964 and have tried to do everything with a certain level of attention and uh, uh, reverence because I think that, you know, it's all very fine to go armed with the knowledge of pharmacology, dose response, LD50 and all that. But I think as pagans and magicians, we really understand that the mind can do anything. And uh, there's a horribly frightening little passage in Jung somewhere where he says, uh, the unconscious has a thousand ways to terminate a life that has become meaningless. Uh, meaning, you know, you'll step in front of a streetcar or something. So in my lifetime of looking at these things, and being interested in many other things as well, uh, heresies, uh, obscure backwaters of art history and literature, um, peculiar philosophies that rose and fell centuries ago in obscure parts of the world. My theory of life's exploration is to run edges and I've mellowed over the years but I used to say if a book isn't a hundred years old you shouldn't read it if a person isn't dead you shouldn't worry about them if they wrote in English you shouldn't bother with them <clears throat> so forth and so on in the course of sorting out the as many peculiar and bizarre possibilities as life could offer me in many places. Uh, my attitude was always critical. My attitude was always a show-me attitude. I don't believe in faith. I don't believe in belief. My favorite gospel story is the story of the Apostle Thomas, who was not present when Christ came the first time after the resurrection to the upper room. And then later Thomas came to the Apostles and they said, uh, the Master has been here. And he said, you guys have been smoking too much of that red lab. And then Christ came again. But in this conversation with the apostles, Thomas said, unless I put my hand into the wound, I will not believe it. And then time passed, and then Christ came again to the upper room. And he said, Thomas, come forward. Put your hand into the wound. And he did, and then he said, Lord, I am not worthy, so forth and so on. My conclusion about this story is that alone among all humanity in all times and places, only one person ever touched the incorporeal body of God. Thomas the doubter touched because he doubted. It was not necessary that the believers should be vouchsafed such a boon, but the doubter was awarded the supreme enlightenment. <clears throat> okay, so much for that. So my, my, my thing has always been, whether you present me with a diet, a, a social arrangement, a society, a sexual conundrum, a work of art, my, my criteria is, is it shit or is it Shinola? And uh, I'm happy to give you the benefit of my personal uh, life's experience proceeding along those lines. 
I want to talk about uh, what to my mind is the quintessential hallucinogen and consequently the quintessential spiritual and magical tool of this dimension and that is DMT, dimethyltryptamine, a compound that occurs in the human nervous system. It occurs in many, many plants. It is the commonest hallucinogen in all of nature. And I don't know how you got to where you are this afternoon, but the way I got here is uh, by testing and by hoping and by pursuing a magical, if that's the word, a miraculous, a transcendental ideal that over the course of life, experience strips from you. You know, you have to get a job. Your first love is not your last love. Slowly, this pristine, shining belief in perfectibility is eroded by the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You know, the dark oxen that turn the millstones of the world. But I'm here to tell you that it is real. There is a doorway into another dimension. Aladdin's lamp is real. Fairyland is real. Magic is real in the most real sense. In the same sense that what we call reality is real. And I learned this uh, through this compound. And one of the great puzzles about this compound is why more people don't know about it. No, no brotherhood initiated me. No lineage reaching back to the fall of Atlantis brought me into its circle. Uh, therefore, I feel completely free to say anything I want. Nobody has ever come to me and said, you are spilling the beans, you are telling the secret. Uh, a long, long time ago, and you know, we all have different opinions, this is mine, uh, I hope it doesn't offend, but a long, long time ago I took an oath to tell all secrets that came my way. Don't tell me a secret. I won't keep it. I'm against secrets. I'm against hierarchies, lineages, uh, all assumption of special knowledge on the part of anyone in the presence of anyone else is abhorrent to me. I mean, I am a true anarchist, first and foremost. So, uh, DMT, like all things in this world, has a physical body, a presence and a presentation. In this case, it looks rather like earwax. Uh, it is orange. It is crystalline. It smells vaguely of mothballs. And uh, for my money, it is the lapis, the quintessence, the universal panacea at the end of time has sent a reflection back through the temporal labyrinth and wherever this touches, wherever this concresses, the mystery is fully present. So what is it then? Well, it's an experience and I maintain it's the most intense experience you can have this side of the yawning grave without doubt. I mean, people say, is it dangerous? Well, the answer is only if you fear death by astonishment. Yes, that's a, that's a joke here. It's not a joke there. 
because you, you find yourself literally holding your heart to verify that you have not, in fact, had a coronary thrombosis induced by wonder, terror, reverence, and astonishment. So, here it is, the quintessence, the orange thing. The, it, was it transponded in from Arturus? Was it handed down through some ancient eldritch brotherhood that found this secret before the pyramids were built? Who can say? Whatever it is, wherever it comes from, here's what happens when you allow it to pass through uh, the blood-brain barrier of your own alchemical vessel, which is your body. There is something going on which I've over the years come to call love, L-U-V, not light utility vehicle, but love that is not like eros or not like sexual attraction. I don't know what it's like exactly. It's almost like a physical thing. It's like a glue that pours out into this space. And my immediate impression in there is I'm appalled. I'm appalled at how far I've come. And one of the strange things about DMT is that it does not affect your mind in the ordinary sense in that, you know, drugs, they make you giggly, they frighten you, they stimulate you, they depress you. DMT does none of this. You go to that place with all your groceries. You're there, and you're there thinking, Jesus, H, fucking Christ, what is this? What is it? And there, because, and you're thinking, you know, I must be dead. I've done it this time. The, the psychedelic mantra, I've done it this time. <clears throat> I, I must be dead. And so you, you know, you, you think, heart, heart, yes, hmm, heart, mm, 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 pulse, pulse, yes, yes. And meanwhile, these things are literally in your face. And what they do is they jump into your chest and then they jump out again. And what they're doing, and this is the point, I think, what they're doing is they are singing, chanting, speaking in some kind of language that is very bizarre to hear, but what is far more important is that you can see it. They speak in a language which you see. And this is completely confounding because syntax is not something you ordinarily reach out and touch. And in this space, that's what's happening. And so like jeweled self-dribbling basketballs, these things come running forward. And what they are doing with this visible language that they create is they're making gifts. They're making gifts for you. So, this is an experience which in some form, I mean it will be different for each one of you, but in some form at least what will be similar to my description is how dramatic it will be. It will hit you as hard as it hit me if you do it right. This, to me, this experience is of a fundamentally different order than any other experience this side of the yawning grave. And why religions have not been built around it, why empires have not risen and fallen around the control of its sources, why theology has not enshrined it as its central exhibit for the presence of the other in the human world, I don't know. I can tell the secret. As you notice, nothing shuts me up. Uh, but why this is not four-inch headlines on every newspaper on the planet, I cannot understand, because I don't know what news you were waiting for, but this is the news that I was waiting for. Uh...
it's an incredible challenge to, to human understanding to try and make sense of this. And I started out, you know, reading Jung, doing my Hindu, you know, getting up to speed with all that, studying Zen Buddhism, studying shamanism. The thing that puzzles me about DMT is how little trace there is of it in the human world. I can't point to a period in European art or the art of some group of islanders somewhere and say that is very much like DMT. It isn't. And yet the DMT thing is, it's like an avalanche of orgasmic beauty, but a certain kind of beauty. The only words that I can find for the kind of beauty that it is, is bizarre, alien, outlandish, outre, freaky, and at the very edge of what the human mind seems to be able to hold. Well, where is this coming from? And what is happening? And, and this is what I like to discuss with people such as yourselves who have wide experience in the world and in the realms of the unseen. This has to be taken seriously. In other words, the it's only a hallucination thing. That horseshit is just passe. I mean, reality is only a hallucination for crying out loud. Haven't you heard? So that takes care of that. It's only a hallucination. What we've got here, folks, is an intelligent entelechy of some sort that is frantic to communicate with human beings for some reason. And uh, the possibilities can be logically enumerated. I mean, what we've got here is either this is an extraterrestrial, you know, evolved in a, around a different star, possibly with a different biology, may not even be made of matter, came across an enormous distance sometime, maybe long ago, has some agenda which we may or may not be able to conceive of, this is it, the real thing. As the little girl said in Poltergeist, they're here. So that's one possibility. That's just one possibility. Uh, and I, I present these without judgment because I'm not sure. Uh, uh, if an extraterrestrial wanted to interact with a human society, and it had ethics that forbade it from landing trillion-ton beryllium ships on the United Nations Plaza. In other words, if it were subtle, I can see hiding yourself inside a shamanic intoxication. You would say, let's analyze these people. Okay, they're kind of hard-headed rationalists, except they have this phenomenon called getting loaded. And when they get loaded, they accept whatever happens to them. So let's hide inside the load and we'll talk to them from there and they'll never realize that we're of a different status than pink elephants. Okay, that's one possibility. Now, another possibility is that this is not about extraterrestrials flight and enormous technologies and distant homelands that, uh, and this is maybe closer to friendlier to pagan notions, that there is a parallel continuum nearby, essentially right here, and call it fairyland, call it the western realm, whatever you like, but you don't go there in starships you go there through magical doorways which are opened via ritual and, uh, and things like that. That is a possibility as well. Certainly human folklore in all times and places except Western Europe for the last 300 years has insisted that these parallel domains of intelligence and, and uh, uh, organization exist. There is a third 
possibility, which I leave it to you to decide whether this is the more conservative position or the more radical position. And I reached this reluctantly, and I'm not sure this is my position, but uh, these things have a weird, these tykes, as I call them, these self-transforming machine elves, these, these syntactical homunculi, have a very weird relationship to human beings. First of all, they love us. They care for some reason. Whoever and whatever they are, they're far more aware of us than we are aware of them. I mean, witness the fact that they welcome me. Uh, so, is it possible that at the end of the 20th century, at the end of 500 years of materialism, reductionism, positivism, what we're about to discover is probably the least likely denouement any of us expected out of our dilemma. What we're about to discover is that death has no sting. That what you penetrate on DMT is an ecology of human souls in another dimension of some sort. I mean, this is hair-raising to me, and I spent my whole adolescence and early adulthood getting free from uh, Catholicism and its assumptions, and I never imagined that a thorough exploration of life's mysteries would lead to the conclusion that, in fact, uh, this is but a prelude. We are in a very tiny womb of some sort. Our lives are gestations, and this is not where we are destined to unfold ourselves into what it means to be human. This is some kind of a metamorphic stage, uh, like the pupa of a butterfly. And so, uh, th this is deep water because you know we are fairly agitated over the fact that we fear the planet is dying and us with it this stuff raises the issue that you don't know what dying is therefore it's very uncertain exactly what sort of an attitude we should take to it and as I say, I am not advocating a position. Mysteries are not unsolved problems. They are mysteries. When you stand naked in the presence of the mystery, it is still utterly and completely mysterious. But I enjoy talking to people about this because I think that the human body, the human mind, these are tools for the soul to use in the effort to unlock its meaning and its destiny. And uh, millions of people, perhaps billions of people, have gone to the grave without knowing that this is possible, this experience that I've just described to you. And it's perfectly harmless. I mean, I think that if science would uh, back out of politics and do its work, we could establish that DMT is the most harmless, the safest of all hallucinogens. The fact that it occurs naturally in the human brain is the first clue to its, the fact that it's benign. The second clue is the fact that uh, it only lasts eight to twelve minutes. What that means to a pharmacologist is the body perfectly understands what to do with this compound. You take a hit of DMT and your body says, oh I recognize this, uh, activate deanimation cycle, activate demethylation cycle, activate, it knows what to do. And so within ten minutes you're down. Uh, uh, a drug that you take 
and 48 hours later you're lying around in warm baths and refusing telephone calls is a drug you shouldn't have taken Be because it's hitting you too hard that's not it's not clean it's not smooth DMT the most powerful hallucinogen known to man and science clears your system in 15 minutes I mean you're so down you can't you don't have a small headache or need to take a nap or anything you're ready to do phone calls um, so how can it be then that a compound which each of us carries right here right in the pineal gland right in the Ajna Chakra the Philosopher's Stone is no further away than that how can this be secret from us how can we be trapped in a dimension of such limitation and such mundaneness when our own nervous systems and the ecology around us and our own history over the past half million years argues that this is what we were born and bred for this is where we belong this is what at play in the fields of the goddess must mean and somehow history has uh, made us dysfunctional buried the mystery made it uh, uh, if at best a piece of secret knowledge jealously guarded by somebody I mean I don't know there are lots of mystery cults and secret societies in the world I don't know if any of them are guarding DMT as a secret I, I it may be so no one told me to keep my mouth shut uh, if a, a very suggestive short story I'm sure many of you know and love the the Argentine surrealist writer Jorge Luis Borges well Borges has a book I believe it's called labyrinths and in labyrinths there is a short story called the sect of the Phoenix and it says there is a sacrament older than mankind the sectarians have been the victims of every persecution in human history and the sectarians have been the purveyors of every persecution in history these sectarians are not identifiable by race or place or language or time to the adept the mystery appears ridiculous yet they do not speak of it one child can initiate another it is orange ruins are propitious places do it in the moonlight in the threat at, at the thresholds of buildings and that's all it said it's a page and a half and it suggests and and see here's the thing I, I mean I am not as articulate on this subject as I wish I could be if this is not the secret that these lineages are guarding then they're guarding an empty house this is the secret it is it is it cannot be anything else it is the neoplatonic one it is the transubstantiant object the panis supersubstantialis of the alchemist and it's and and I'm not saying that people have known about this for a long time uh, DMT is in many plants as I said but spread very thinly and we don't have historical records of anyone ever concentrating it I've done the DMT uh, plant preparations of the Amazon the snuffs and the ayahuasca and on ayahuasca if it is heavily laced with the DMT containing plant after hours of breath work and drumming alone in the jungle you can begin to open it up to the place the DMT will carry you to in 45 seconds in an Upper East Side apartment uh, whether you like it or not 
some of you may have seen, I don't, years and years ago, this B movie about a guy who has a big ranch in Mexico, and one of the campesinos comes rushing back from having encountered a brontosaur in the forest, and he can only point inarticulately at the woods and say, something, 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 something. <clears throat> And that's what I am. I'm a monkey. And I've come back to the truth. And I'm telling you, there's something over the next hill that is off the scale. Off the scale. And I have made it my business to, you know, delve. I'm a delver. I'm a noetic archaeologist. Uh, obscure heresies and strange rites and all of this stuff, been there, done that. It's all pale soup compared to this. And so I, I hype it to you simply to try and inspire you to explore it. We are at the present state in the position of explorers of the new world 50 years after Columbus. We have notebook entries. We have partial maps, but we don't have a complete map of what this thing is. It's another dimension. It is literally another dimension. I took uh, DMT to a, a llama of great accomplishment, not one of the grab-ass can of Budweiser welded to the good right hand llamas, but a real llama. This guy was over 90 when he smoked DMT, and uh, he sensed his wheel has turned. Um, and he said to me, he said, it's the lesser lights. He said, you can't go further into the bardo and return. And so I think that we stand at the brink of an enormous frontier call it incorporeality, call it non-material existence, or, you know, bite the bullet, call it death. But this is the frontier that we stand on the edge of. This is what history has been about. History has been some kind of suicide plot for 15,000 years. Not a moment passed that the plot was not advanced closer and closer and closer and closer to completion. And now in the 20th century, you know, we see that this thing, this transcendental object at the end of time, this attractor has been, that chose us out of the animal kingdom and sculpted the neocortex, opposed the thumb, stood us on our hind legs, gave us binocular vision. This thing is calling us toward itself across eons of cosmic time. We are asked to mirror it, and as we mirror it, we become more of its essence. And as we become more of its essence, we leave behind the animal organization that we were uh, cast in in the beginning. And what this is about who knows? You know, is this a drama of cosmic redemption? Is it uh, uh, the transcendental other at the end of time? Is it a Gnostic demon? Is it Ildabuah? What is it? We do not know. But I really believe we are in the era when we will come to know. And what the psychedelics are, are periscopes in the temporal dimension. If you want to see a little bit into the future, elevate your psychedelic periscope outside of the three-dimensional continuum and peer around for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. We have been pulled toward this omega point. The earth is like an egg. It has come to its moment of fructification. The dawn that has been anticipated since we were herding our cattle across the plains of Africa is now upon us. The east is streaked with the blush of rosy dawn. 
it is coming upon us. And I think that it will redeem history, that history is not a nightmare. It is a passage. It is an initiation. Think of the fetus in the womb at the moment of transition. Surely it must despair. The walls are closing in. It's being crushed and strangled. Gone are the endless amniotic oceans of a few months before. The weightlessness, the effortless delivery of food through the umbilical cord. Suddenly, it's just boundaries and agony and crushing pressure. That's where we are. And we are going to have to shed history like a snake sheds its skin if we want to slip off into hyperspace where I think all of magical humanity is awaiting us and cheering us on, lending their weight. They're all out there, you know, Proclus and Plotinus and Plato and Hypatia and Henry Cornelius Agrippa and John Dee and Robert Flood and Eliaphas Levy. They're all out there pulling for us. And every shaman and shamaness, every magician, practitioner, as far back in time as you go, was part of the plan, the conjuration, the great work, the distillation of the quintessence. It, history is a magical invocation. And at the end of that invocation, if it is correctly done, all boundaries will dissolve into the stone the lapis, a trans-dimensional vehicle that can move through space and time, that is the collectivity of all human souls free at last in what William Blake called the divine imagination. And you don't have to wait for the general dispensation. You can join up anytime by hyperspatializing your metaphors, and your point of view through psychedelic symbiosis with the plants that are pouring this hyperdimensional Gaian vision into the minds of anyone who will detoxify themselves from history and, uh, and linear thinking and but open themselves to the presence of the transformative mystery that is going to leave this planet unrecognizable to us within our lifetimes. So that's uh, the basic spiel. And and I think it raises a lot of questions, and yours is first. The answer is yes, uh, yes. The question is, are there herbs in the temperate zone that contain DMT? And uh, yes, um, there are certain grasses, Phalaris arundinacea, Phalaris tuberosa. These can be ordered from plant dealers or gotten, ironically enough, from agricultural experiment stations because these are pasturage grasses. Uh, a lot of people are doing wonderful work right now learning how to make DMT preparations out of native plants. Uh, the, the mature Phalaris grass, it's very diffuse, the DMT. So what people are doing is they're getting the seeds and they're sprouting them in a sprouter. And then they're taking the sprouted seeds and air drying them well, you can imagine how powdery sprouts become if you air dry them. Well, then you can powder up a handful of these sprouts and uh, roll that, twist that into a bomber and come very, very close to the flash point. The other thing, I mean, since I'm talking to recipe-oriented magicians, the other thing you need to understand if you want to work in this area is that the DMT can ordinarily not be taken orally because there is an enzyme system in your intestines called the monoamine oxidase system, then it will destroy the DMT. 
But the good news is there are certain compounds called monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Didn't you know it? If you take a monoamine oxidase inhibitor and then you take DMT, the DMT will survive the gut and pass into the bloodstream and pass the blood-brain barrier. So here is a very important piece of practical information I'm about to give you. If you want to inhibit your monoamine oxidase in order to uh, make DMT trips longer or mushroom trips longer and more intense or to activate DMT if you only have a little bit of it, then what you should get are the seeds of pergamon harmala, P-E-R-G-A-M-U-M, pergamum harmala, H-A-R-M-A-L-A. You can either order it under that name from seed dealers or go to an Iranian market uh, and buy what is called hermal, H-U-R-M-A-L. This is simply pergamon harmala seeds. They use it as an incense uh, to fumigate rooms. But two grams, don't take more. Two grams of this uh, macerated in a mortar and pestle with spring water taken from a spring at the new moon near a crossroads <laughs> will uh, uh, inhibit your MAO. It will inhibit your MAO. Consequently, then when you smoke the bomber of Phalaris dust, it will grab on. Or you can even smoke mushrooms then, and they will grab on. Uh, so knowing how to inhibit MAO is one of the key techniques in this kind of herbal shamanic magic. Uh, other plants that contain DMT, and here's one you all should be aware of, because it's probably right around here, is uh, Desmanthus illinoisensis, Illinois bundle weed. It's a, it's a rank weed. Of, I've not seen it except in the dried form, but people have grown hundreds of pounds of this stuff in a few months, and the root bark has the highest concentration of DMT ever measured in any plant. It's, it's higher than the ayahuasca admixtures used in the Amazon. Pardon? In the root bark, the root bark, which uh, you, sh you dry the root and then scrape the bark off and you'll get this reddish root bark. The red is actually the DMT. Varola trees in the Amazon shed DMT in their sap and it's always a blood red sap. And to show you how strong it is, uh, the Indians in the Amazon, some of the tribes, they roll their arrow points directly into that sap, and it's a paralytic poison in the bloodstream of monkeys and small animals. Uh, so there is a great deal of work is being done right now, and you should, if you're of an experimental and herbal and alchemical and magical bent, uh, people are creating what they call ayahuasca analogs. This is where you use local plants to create a brew which is chemically equivalent to an Amazonian hallucinogen. And, of course, you have the satisfaction that it's yours. It's your magical recipe. No one on earth is doing quite what you've got. And uh, it's very, uh, a lot of interesting work is being done, and uh, you'll hear more about this. In fact, Jonathan Ott just wrote a book called Ayahuasca Analogues, in which the state of the art is spelled out, and it, it would be worth your while to check that out if you're an experimentalist. Yeah. The, the question is, is there a more... Is there a simple reagent test for the presence of DMT? The answer is sort of. You can do a paper chromatographic test, and all you need is a little, a little UV light and some chromatography paper and some solvent dishes. I mean, it's at the level of a seventh grade uh, science project. Uh, 
Yes, I don't know how much I should say on this subject. I'm probably about to say too much. But at one gathering I go to, uh, one of the people who's a very regular part of that particular posse is a wheat breeder. So when he heard about the Phalaris, he was a geneticist and a wheat breeder, and he has been working very quietly on his own at, to produce super strains of Phalaris. And I think we will soon see super strains because the underground community is incredibly creative in this area. The, the compound I talked about yesterday, Salvia divinorum, that's all underground work. Brett Blosser, the anthropologist who discovered it, is a complete freak. Uh, the guy, the chemist who extracted it, who would prefer I don't put out his name, is a complete freak. And the people who then did the confirmation studies, my brother and his band of performing pharmacologists, all freaks. So we actually, we do not take ourselves seriously enough. I mean, we have our scientists, we have our philosophers, we have our thinkers, our legal experts. We are a complete community. And it's no longer, in my mind, even necessary to publish in straight journals and to seek a pat on the head from, you know, the American pharmacology community. Uh, they don't understand what these things are for anyway. Yes. Yes, I'll repeat this um, and strengthen once again my case to the guy who owns the company that he should pay me, for God's sake. Um, if you want a catalog of extremely rare and useful psychoactive and magical plants, probably the most complete in the world, the company is called Of the Jungle, P.O. Box 1801, Sebastopol, S-E-B-A-S-T-O-P-O-L, California, 95472. Write and ask for a catalog and tell them George Bush sent you. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Don't tell them that. They won't send you the catalog. <laughs> Well, let me, I didn't mean to diss Castaneda as a metaphor maker. No, I think The Teachings of Don Juan is a tremendous book. Uh, I, I'm very suspicious of, of some of his later stuff. It's interesting what you said, because you know the famous crow transformation in The Teachings of Don Juan has been traced, and I'm sure many of you know this book, has been traced to George MacDonald's book, through the gates of the Silver Key. Uh, and, and George MacDonald <clears throat> was a friend of Evans Vance. So I think what we're getting here is a mining of late 19th century English folklore by Castaneda. Nevertheless, uh, the, the presence of these small entities has been a part of folklore for a long, long time. Uh, elementals, types, what puzzled me about, what puzzles me, I guess, is I've spent a lot of time in this magical literature and, and art historical area, and the descriptions don't quite match. I can't quite convince myself that the, the, the sprites, the afrites, the nixies, the jinns, that these creatures of the woodland fae are the same thing. Or, I don't know whether I am contaminated by an early love of science fiction and... Well, again, close, but no banana. Uh, there, all these popular aliens that are running around, you know, the Whitley Streboids and all these things, are, to my, are, are much more mundane than what I encountered. I mean, what I encountered was terrifyingly not human terrifyingly alien and I I just do not quite get and Madame Blavatsky was into it and they're always saying you know they, I don't know they're very sort of cut and dried about it 
And when I encounter an extraterrestrial alien or a creature from another dimension, the main thing that's happening for me is the implications are blowing my mind. They don't, they seem totally immune to the implications. Yeah. Well, a sufficient amount of DMT is smoked uh, uh, west of the Pacific Coast Highway that it wouldn't surprise me uh, if the writers of Star Trek, I mean, uh, were on to this. Um, yes, what, um, what, I, what is not much talked about, the part of the experience which is anomalous, and maybe people who know more about magical literature than I do can correct me, but this, what the elves are really interested in is this stuff which I call visible language. That's the whole point of the encounter, is to exhibit it and to get you to do it. Well, now, first of all, think for a minute about ordinary language. It's really weird. It's the weirdest thing we do. I mean, if you were looking for the thumbprint of God on creation, human language would be a good candidate. Because, look, we're supposed to be some kind of animal who just went a little further than the next guy. But to get out of that Shakespeare and Milton is a pretty amazing accomplishment, hardly to speak of the mathematical languages that we generate. So something happened. Some people think only 35,000 years ago. Imagine if that's true. I mean, I don't care. Some people say 150,000 years ago. But to speak, to take small mouth noises, and to turn them into signifiers for symbols and relationships, uh, in spite of some people's enthusiasm for cetaceans and dolphins, I just am not overwhelmed by the evidence. I mean, it, to me, you know, it is a miracle to be able to speak poetry. It is a miracle. I mean, when Coleridge wrote and south and south and southward I we fled and it grew wondrous cold and ice mast high went floating by as green as emerald. I mean, that's language and uh, it's magic. And we have a fascination, then we also paint, then we sculpt, then we write, then we create electronic databases, then film, television. Clearly, what we want to do is we want to communicate visually. And these things are saying there's a way to do it. Do it! And I don't understand. Do we all have to be loaded on DMT all the time? Can you learn to do this? The gentleman who asked about dreams, here's a piece of information that is critical in this jigsaw puzzle. If you have smoked DMT at any time in the past, it is possible to have a dream in which people are running around and you're checked into the Mars Hotel and the luggage is lost and this and that, and in the middle of all that, someone drags out a little glass pipe and hands it to you. It will happen. It will happen in the dream, not a memory, not a simulacrum. It will really happen. Well, now, to me, that's an amazing piece of data because what it's saying is you can do it on the Natch. You may have to be dead asleep, but still, on the Natch, this can be done. And the lucid dreamers, the biofeedback people, the people who claim these wonderful things that you can do with sleep and dream and programming, I challenge them, teach people to have DMT dreams in their sleep. And then let's figure out how to drag that puppy into the light so that we can do it at will on the Natch. Uh, one, just one second. And, one thing that I have come to believe is that we remember no more than 5% of our dreams, and it's the most mundane 5%. I think, uh, and there's scientific evidence to support this, remember I said DMT is in the human brain? 
Well, it concentrates in the human cerebrospinal fluid on a 24-hour cycle, and it reaches its peak of concentration between 3 and 4 a.m. in most people. That's when the deep REM sleep is happening. When you give somebody DMT, they, they lay back, they close their eyes, and the way you, the guide, the sitter, I don't like the word guide, you, the sitter, the way you can tell that they're getting off is their eyes dart wildly behind their closed eyelids. It means they're in REM. They're in REM sleep. They've been immediately shoved into deep dreaming. So I believe that the, what DMT is doing in normal human metabolism is it mediates the descent, the spiral descent into dream, and that every single night we are reunited with the boundaryless oceanic mystery of being that we are so frantic about in waking life and so distant from. And that if we could, in fact, just engineer a drug that would allow us to remain fully conscious as we drift deeper into dream, we would need no other drug or substance. That that's where we want to go. And I think that's where history is headed. What the archaic revival is about is a revivification of the aboriginal dream time. We are going to live in the imagination. We are preparing to decamp from three-dimensional space. I mean, yes, the earth is the cradle of the human race, but you don't stay in the cradle forever, you know. And, uh, and it's something like going into dream. It's something like taking the hyper-technical, virtual reality, internet head of the snake and inserting the shamanic, late paleolithic, ecstatic, orgiastic tail of the snake, and then you have the Ouroboric completion. Then you have uh, the quintessence, and the work is complete, and history ends, and we live then in the light of the stone made manifest. Well, it, it definitely has something, this mystery that we're talking about, it definitely has something to do with sound and the magical role of sound. Uh, ayahuasca is a sort of different way of sectioning the DMT experience because ayahuasca is orally active, unfolds over hours, uh, is not as dramatic as DMT, but the people who use ayahuasca as a ritual on a weekly basis, what their uh, practice consists of is they take this stuff and then they sing. They sing like crazy. And then when they stop singing and people light a cigarette and take a leak and so forth, and you're listening to these conversations, you hear people say stuff about the shaman-like I like the part with the olive drab and the silver, but when it became magenta and moved toward orange, I thought he was over the top. You think, you know, what, what kind of a criticism of a song is that? And the answer is, sound has become a visually beheld medium. Yes, so what, the reason I have the reason I'm interested in something as techno-nerdy as virtual reality is because you could, you could program a virtual reality so that when you went, ah, an iridescent blue line would be keyed to that to descend into the space. And I, I'm very interested in environmental and electronic simulations of psychedelic states. But, but we're not going to do better than the psychedelics. If we can do as well, it will be a miracle. I mean, you see more beauty in a first wave of psilocybin than the human race has produced in the past 5,000 years. And who are you, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. This talk was lifted from the psychedelicsalon.com. 
So that's it for this week. Here is the track Indian Trail from the album One by Nameless Archive. Go to namelessarchive.com if you want to hear more. Next Sunday is going to be the final episode recorded at the Altered Conference. Take it easy. Freedom is in the mind. I'm not alone anymore. Now I know what the hell I stand for. What's adored? It doesn't matter what I did before, like Poe, never more.